This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. R. Scott Hufford, Jr. about his book, Engines of Redemption, Railroads and Reconstruction of Capitalism in the New South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. Dr. Hufford is Assistant Professor of History at Lee's McRae College. Engines of Redemption is a fascinating history of capitalism in the South, which tells the story of how railroads revitalized the region following the Civil War. Dr. Hufford examines the myriad of ways that railroads were used to secure political and economic growth and power in the South throughout the Reconstruction era. Railroads, however, were not always seen as a blessing, and Hufford pays close attention to how the rapid southern growth of the locomotive was accompanied by rising anxieties from race to di- disease. Dr. Hufford, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic? Why did you decide to study it? Uh, well, it all goes back to my first year or two in grad school. I was interested in studying some kind of sort of capitalism-focused topic. I was thinking even about doing coal miners in, in Pennsylvania as an original topic, but uh, I was in Bill Link's Southern History Research Seminar, and I was kind of casting about for some kind of Southern topic to look into, and I got really fascinated by this yellow fever outbreak that hit in Florida in 1888, and it moved along the railroad from from Tampa to Jacksonville. And there's this huge backlash all across the South because of this this yellow fever scare that that broke out. And I just really got fascinated by by this story at first because disease has always been kind of interesting to me. Uh, But I looked at you know, when I was writing my paper, uh, people had written on yellow fever, of course, but but not in the the way that I was trying to, to do. So I was finding all these moments where Southerners were contesting connections, contesting circulation, complaining about railroad companies. Uh, and it became more of just sort of backlash against disease that we're seeing when you know people tried to stop the trains movement. It's also backlash against you know, capitalism itself, in a sense, and this idea that we had to connect the South to what the New South boosters were sort of all about here. Uh, and from from there, it just kind of kind of grew because I found all these other sort of similar sort of counter narratives that that ran against this New South story and this bigger story about what capitalism is supposed to do for everyone, uh, and it sort of grew out of that. Uh, I also was sort of writing this. You know, after the Great Recession hit, you know, and, you know, 
2008, I went to grad school you know, the year before that. And it was a time period when we were pretty much living through one of capitalism's pretty big downswings. And uh, this kind of jumped off the pages of, the, of, the, of history for me when I, when I saw some of these stories. And one of the things that you set out early in the book to uh, illustrate is that the railroad became essential to Southerners' efforts to rewrite the history of the Civil War. And so how did this happen? Why did the railroad become, you know, an integral part of this project? Uh, Well, I've always been, you know, really into the Civil War. That's another one of my sort of long-running interests in undergrad and going into to grad school. And in the end, it's just this, this dramatic moment when the soldiers are kind of straggling home and uh, the railroads are in ruins and, and everything the South had kind of been doing is all sort of sort of ruined. All these questions are out there. We have to pick up the pieces. And that kind of year zero moment uh, was always kind of interesting t- to me. And you know, I found all these examples of the railroad being used to kind of prove that the South had overcome this. Uh, you know, they, they were using the railroad to, to show that, you know, we're no longer disconnected. You know, the Sherman's neckties are gone. Uh, you know, this even kind of blends in with some of these lost cost cause explanations for the South losing. You know, you see lots of people, even Jefferson Davis said, you know, we lost because we had didn't have enough railroads, but now we have them. So we're in good shape. Uh, and, you know, the railroads were there before. We The South had some railroads in the 1850s. Uh, they built a whole bunch in that decade. And in the Civil War, they were quite useful even. Uh, but this boom in the 1880s is so large in magnitude. You know, the network doubles in size, uh, we see so much more connectivity, speed, uh, consolidation. And for all these New South myth makers, this really lets them prove that we have a New South, that we are no longer in the past, that slavery is gone. We've sort of accepted that. We can even welcome Northern investment through the railroad as well. So uh, it lets them sort of make all these pretty big claims, which are, of course, overblown. Uh, the New South was not as new as you know they claimed it was but it still was uh, a big part of this rewriting effort for sure yeah i think you know that's kind of we still see that to this day where you know i remember in grade school when you learn about the civil war and part of the reason that the south lost was because there wasn't as many railroads and you know what railroads there were you know the union armies made a concerted effort to pull them up so that the south couldn't use them yeah and you see even that is a bit of a myth because some historians have argued that the railroads the south had were actually used really effectively and we have troop movements that happen and you can make even the case that the railroads prolonged the war because they used them so well but for the the myth makers you know they, they kind of ignore that they look at kind of raw mileage and they say oh we're, we're way behind and this of course dovetails with you know, the industrial capacity kind of being behind the North as well. Uh, so they kind of exaggerate this destruction, exaggerate the deficiency. Uh, and, you know, this boom that I write about really is what lets them prove that you know, we've, moved, we've moved beyond this, basically, and a new South is here. And so one of the things that you also talk about is that while this you know, there's this boom in, you know, railroads happening following the Civil War that sometimes this kind of progress is hampered by the sectional differences and animosities that are still very much present between North and South. And so how does that play out? 
Yeah, that's a, a huge theme, especially in, in the early part of the book. Uh, and it was definitely something that a lot of the Southern boosters had to, to overcome because you know, all these boosters were, were still pretty mad. You know, the, the feelings were, were quite raw in the immediate aftermath of the war, even reconstruction, lots of the railroads were built by the Republican governments and the redeemers, of course, uh, did not like that. Uh, you know, I talk about, you know, a book I use a lot, Scott Nelson's iron confederacies. And he writes about how the Klan and all this violence goes after uh, this attempt the Pennsylvania Railroad has to build a system during Reconstruction. Uh, and by what I, I focus on in the 1880s, this is sort of fading a bit. But I write about the Southern Railway, which consolidates in the 1890s. Uh, and J.P. Morgan, you know, the richest guy, you know, the epitome of, of you know, Wall Street capitalism buys up all these lines in the South and reorganizes them. And they have to be really strategic with the, the branding. They call it the Southern Railway, of course, even though it's run by Wall Street guys. They put an ex-Confederate Samuel Spencer in charge. We see this a lot, too. You put an old general in charge. And, uh, you know, really, Wall Street is the one who's pulling the strings in these companies. But uh, they have to use all these kind of tactics to, to smooth this over. Even at the local level, too, you know, small towns, you know, the small town boosters will say, we're building this for the community. We're building this to, to benefit ourselves. But the funding often is coming from the north. That's where uh, the money is at this time period. And they have to find ways to, to mask these connections to, to Wall Street, well, which is, you know, even by the 1890s, a pretty big bogeyman for folks in the South. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that kind of interesting as, you know, as you were just talking about, you know, you have the kind of myth making of, you know, what the railroad meant during the Civil War. And then even afterwards, there's just kind of active myth making on both sides of the kind of sectional divide about how they can go about even trying to increase the presence of railroads. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's you know, the myth making. That was even at one point early part of the, the title because that's uh, what a lot of this book is is about in a more broader sense. It's about the sort of stories we tell about corporations, about capitalism, and the railroad. Of course, you know, is, is always having all these kind of stories attached to it and different meanings. And that's very, of course, you know, pivotal turning point moments of war reconstruction and and beyond. And one thing that you uh, bring up in your book, both in the beginning and then you talk about it later on, is this concept of phantasmagoria, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, um, something that I know I wasn't familiar with uh, to begin with. And I imagine some of our viewers or well, listeners might not be uh, familiar with as well. And so can you explain what this is and how it's important to your study? So this idea first pops up from, from Walter Benjamin in the Arcades Project. And uh, I was kind of lucky. I ended up with a European cultural historian on my committee as sort of the non-U.S. person that kind of pulled the project in kind of interesting ways because we read lots of the sort of culture history of capitalism books and, and lots of these questions about resistance to capitalism, anxieties, counter-narratives. I mean, Europeans have been writing about this stuff too, obviously, not just Americans. And Walter Benjamin talks about this, this dream consciousness that comes with the arrival of capitalism, this sort of sleep-like state. Uh, and if he's looking really at you know, expositions and world's fairs as part of this. And, uh, and I think it's a good kind of metaphor 
for what's sort of happening with, with the railroad. It's this magical thing when the railroad comes. Everyone's super excited about it. It's, it's wonderful. We have all these train stories. Uh, but this also obscures these kind of unsavory aspects of the railroad and capitalism. So it's a metaphor that that works. I talk about World's Fairs, too. And there's these moments in the book that I like a lot where – you get these accounts that just kind of go off the edges of, of reality. Uh, you know, we, I read about these train robbers and people are talking about them shape-shifting in different animals and all these kind of magical ideas. And the railroad brings more of this kind of enchantment, uh, as I call it, or magical thinking to the South, uh, which can both inspire, and the boosters use this to sort of inspire folks, uh, or terrify as sort of my, my negative stories describe here and this phantasmagoria idea i think was a you know way that kind of encapsulates this and a good theme that i've run throughout the book yeah i think it's a, it's a really interesting way of introducing readers into this idea that you know the railroads as this kind of symbol of of capitalism's growth in the south and everything like that and the changing nature of it um really is a way of you know to kind of go back to what we've talked about before you know this kind of myth making and you know kind of lowering a shroud over people so that they don't see quite what's going on around them yeah, exactly. And, and there's a sort of global story, too, which is also what uh, I'm kind of interested in. The book doesn't go too much into the sort of global connections, but there's a people writing about railroads all, all across the world in kind of similar ways. Uh, you know, the railroad in, in much of American historiography has been seen as this positive thing. But if you're thinking about someone writing you know, African history or other uh, other fields, the railroad's going to be this agent of imperialism, this sort of negative thing here so like this also is you know a way to sort of tap into this global story of railroads and you know the dualism in a sense but yeah and one thing that i really appreciate with your book is that you know even though it's kind of a history kind of a history of uh capitalism and sort of economic focus and everything like that you don't you know um push out other things that are going on at this time and so it's obviously the south following the civil war you know you kind of have to talk about race and you very much do. You kind of foreground it in this history. And so one of the things that you talk about is that Southerners use the railroad to continue to control not just, you know, black people, but the very image of black people. And so how does that happen? Uh, well, yeah, so I was yeah, definitely trying to engage race. Of course, a huge theme in the book because, uh, you know, it's impossible study the South without noting at the same time this boom is happening, what we're seeing the rise of Jim Crow and the consolidation of all these sort of racial ideas here. Uh, and, you know, I think the railroad is definitely part of this. I mean, I'm not the first person to, to make this claim because, you know, Plessy B. Ferguson, all the, that, that was on a railroad car. So it's been sort of an accepted, you know, part of the historiography that railroad is key here. Uh, but I think this kind of phantasmagoria aspect, which I'm writing about, that the magic of the railroad does play into this because you know, the railroad makes things appear differently. And we see all these descriptions of African-Americans in the South as wayward or wandering or dangerous or anonymous black faces uh, because they're being put in motion you know, by the railroad. This, this changes perceptions here. Uh, I also do write about this sort of drive to segregate too, which, which starts on the railroads and this attempt to really strictly classify everything by, by racial categories, which of course is, is 
really hard to do and impossible in many ways. But uh, so I try to, of course, track that narrative. And, you know, I think railroads and capitalism and these forces of connection, in a sense, are making these racial animosities worse, that they're fueling, in a sense, that the rise of Jim Crow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so, you know, how did black people also kind of push back against this? You know, you mentioned Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, but what else is going on that you see? Uh, yeah, there is this whole story of resistance. You know, that's just one example. Uh, and this, of course, even predates you know, the Civil War attempts to have access on you know, transportation. It's huge for African-Americans. Uh, and you know, someone like Ida B. Wells is part of this story. She's, of course, most famous for her anti-lynching activism. But she kind of cut her teeth in you know, activism by challenging a conductor in the 1880s, gets ticked off a train. Uh, so that's one example. Even just the act of riding a train and taking an excursion and traveling somewhere else, you know, the African-Americans were able to kind of play in this sort of gray area of capitalism because the railroads, you know, they want people to ride them. They want you know, ridership that they want to have excursions for African-Americans uh, and you know, that they want to provide this access. So it, even just the act of consumerism could be in a sense, some resistance here. Uh, so I try to sort of write about the re- resistance aspect uh, as well, because uh, even just the act of boarding a train as a middle-class African-American is pushing back against some of these stereotypes that are out there. Yeah, I mean, I find one of the things that's most interesting about the post-Civil War period and the ways in which uh, Black Americans try to kind of, you know, realize freedom and act on it is how much, you know, they really kind of lean into being able to being able to kind of freely move, at least, you know, in theory, they should be able to freely move. And railroad is one of those big ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh you know, just being able to to, to you know, find your your family after slavery or move from point to point, and uh, you know when they do travel, though, we see these efforts to, to demonize them, and and that's who ends up getting targeted with, with lynchings. Often, it's that the mobile African Americans and the ones who are traveling from point to point to, to work, and there's this sort of contradiction of white folks telling the, the black Southerners to, to go to work and then to to do things, but when they do work and move and travel on the railroads, they're uh, you know, segregated and met with violence. So uh, we see this sort of tension in the heart of Jim Crow that that comes up with with black mobility in a sense. Um, You just mentioned lynching. And one of the things that you point out in your book when you're talking about how the railroads and race are intimately connected is how you are able to pick up on lynchings kind of going up um, at least, you know, seemingly going up when train wrecks happen. And so what's the relationship between those two? Uh, so to take a step back, yeah, that, I have this whole chapter about train wrecks because uh, I was just, you know, doing my research, looking up data. And, you know, it's remarkable. The South had the most dangerous railroads in the country by the 1880s and 90s. Uh, and I would have 
immediately guessed, you know, maybe the West or even the urban Northeast would have the most dangerous railroads. But on a per capita basis, the South's having all these these train wrecks. Uh, and this is kind of the ultimate indictment of this, this railroad boom. It was done rapidly. It was done cheaply. They're cutting corners, things like that. And, you know, when this happens, you know, you're going to see lots of, of train wrecks. Uh, and the other interesting thing I started to find as I was reading accounts of train wrecks is uh, you'll see newspapers dropping these hints that, oh, this was uh, some conspiracy by someone to, to direct this train and derail it, and, and we're going after them. And uh, I, I looked at a couple train wrecks sort of deeply, and uh, the companies were putting blame on black Southerners for a lot of these. Uh, and to be anonymous African-Americans usually or working class African-Americans, uh, you know, these are the same kind of scapegoats who are being you know, scapegoated for, for these rape claims that are causing lynchings. Uh, and, you know, there's this surge in train wrecks and this claim of train wreck is spiking at the same time that other historians have charted lynching. So I was looking at other historians of, of course, charted lynchings and how they've risen over time, basically. Uh, and this is happening sort of the same time as this, this train wrecker fear. And, you know, not all these lynchings, are, of course, from train wrecks, but there is some sort of similarity there. And we have this instance where companies are you know, blaming black Southerners to deflect public anger for, for their own problems of, of dangerous railroads and, uh, so this is interesting relationship there. These same dynamics that fuel lynching are also fueling uh, this idea that these train wreckers out there. Yeah, I think for me, that was one of the things that sort of surprised me the most. You know, when you, when you read about it and, you know, when you're talking about it, it kind of seems, OK, you know, given what I know about the South, this almost seems logical. But it was something where when I went into it, I was just like, whoa, what? I did not expect to see this at all. Yeah, it was that was a chapter that you know the research really drove that chapter. I was writing the dissertation and I made this big spreadsheet of, of train wrecks and I was looking at you know thinking about writing about some train wrecks and I just saw this 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 train wrecker idea popped up again and again, this idea that train wreckers are going after things and newspapers. So I started to try to quantify this with uh, newspaper sources. And, and I started to see these, these pretty clear trends. Uh, and it was a good example, I guess, of, of letting the sources, in a sense, uh, drive the drive the conversation and drive the, the chapter. And it, I think it turned out pretty well. Uh, you know, the sources were quite interesting on that, that too. I said two wrecks looked in, in quite good detail and I even found almost a smoking gun where companies are saying, oh, we'll blame this on these people, blame this on them. Uh, so it was sort of an interesting and fun chapter to, to write for sure. And in terms of other things that, you know, the r railroad is kind of bringing up, you know, these kind of negative things in the community. One of the other things that you look at is disease and how that influences the perception of railroads. And so how does that happen? And one of the things that you point out is that railroad companies, you know, as you've said before, just now, you know, they're not kind of standby. They're actively trying to shape uh, their perception of railroads themselves, the community, what have you. And so how do they respond to the kind of, you know, ideas about disease and railroads that people around them are having? So a lot of this sort of stems from the 1878 yellow fever epidemic, which uh, was a pretty huge deal that, you know, I think has not been looked at maybe enough because it happens right after construction ends, uh, kills upward of 20,000 people in the Mississippi Valley. So a huge deal. And 
you know, uh, a look at this epidemic and Southerners on the ground are starting to put the dots together and they're realizing that uh, railroads are spreading this. This is coming from, from the railroads, essentially. It's moving to new places in the interior of Mississippi. Uh, and they aren't always explicitly blaming the companies for this. But when they see the companies doing little to stop the trains from running, uh, you're, you're going to see so some conflict there, basically. Uh, so, you know, the railroads... Some of them did try their best, of course, to, to shape perception here. They would try to run aid or help send doctors into the affected areas. But uh, it's the real thing a lot of folks want is just to stop the trains. And you know, people would get shotguns out and, and all kinds of shotgun quarantines, get their guns out, stand on the train tracks and, and stop the trains from running. Uh, and the companies, you know, again, it's not really the, the, their fault, but uh, – they're getting blamed for this and they're, they're trying their, their best to, you know, send aid and things like that. But they also aren't really stopping the trains from, from running. Cause I mean, you really can't do that when you can't just shut down the whole network, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really interesting to see, you know, how people are kind of, you know, after the civil war, you know, there's kind of advancements and sort of the way that medicine is thought about and how germ theory operates and everything like that. And so it's interesting how people are starting, you know, even everyday people are starting to kind of put the dots together, as you said, and figure out that, you know, I think the railroads are really spreading this thing. Yeah. The history of disease and medicine as a whole, other interesting field that uh, I teach a class on that. I don't have uh, It's just, it's, it's fun, I think, and to see all these weird disjunctures between what we now know and, and what people are trying to, to figure out. In the late 19th century is this dangerous period for disease where we have new connections like steamboats and railroads. We haven't, we haven't really figured things out yet. And this happens with cholera as well. And, and, and you know, it's spreading in new ways. But the yellow fever really is uh, has a big impact on, on the South in this time period. And I wanted to really emphasize that that story, which I don't think has been fully connected uh, as it should be to, to some of the histories of the new South that, that we see. And one thing that you've already mentioned uh, that you go into detail in the book about is train robbers uh, and how, you know, some people at the time kind of, or at least some people afterwards will kind of liken train robbers to like a Robin Hood figure, you know, going after the big capitalist organizations of the railroad companies and everything like that. But you present an alternate reading of them. And so how does your research shed new light on train robbers? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because, yeah, as you said, we, we like to see these guys, people like Jesse James, as, as, as heroes. They're fighting back against the banks and stick to the railroads, all these things. Uh, even with Jesse James, of course, this is, this is wrong. You know, he was really violent. He was a neo-Confederate. Not really someone we should really lionize. Uh, but I look at these two guys in Alabama, Rube Burrow, who was white, and Railroad Bill, uh, who, who was black, who, who both were going after railroads in the 1890s. And, you know, again, there's some some of these people have uh, have made this Robin Hood comparison that they you know gave things to people along the line and, and helped out the poor. But I don't see too, too much of that really in their actual stories. And I think instead of seeing them as resistance, it makes more sense to see these guys as as products of capitalism or even what I would call monsters of capitalism uh, you know, from the vantage point of the communities they terrorize and you know, the police and law enforcement going after them. These were kind of monsters that were taking advantage of the railroad. You know, they're using the connections to, to stage their crimes. You know, they're using the predictability of the network, 
Railroad Bill had a favorite train he liked to rob. We knew it always came at a certain time, basically. So they're taking advantage of connections and standardization and speed. You know, they're taking advantage of the fact that the South's economy is reviving and we're seeing capital and commodities flowing through the network more and more. Uh, and when they're eluding the law, of course, they're also taking advantage of the railroad's connections. The railroad bill is hopping on trains and eluding the law that way, essentially. Uh, so when we see, you know, these towns and communities and, and law enforcement officials, you know, go into these panics over these guys, uh, in some ways it's almost more backlash against the dark forces of the, the railroad. You know, Railroad Bill is not some guy who's fighting the railroad. In a sense, he's the personification of, you know, the dark forces of the railroad here. Yeah, I mean, I find that really interesting and kind of, you know, an alternate reading of how these people in reality are not kind of enemies of capitalism. They're not exactly always trying to return the world around them to some sort of pre-capitalist society, but in, in reality are just byproducts of capitalism and really capitalists themselves, you know, as you're talking about, you know, these people are kind of having sophisticated networks um, of what they're doing when they're going to rob a train, what they're going to do afterwards. You know, they're very much part of this system themselves. Yeah. And a lot of these guys don't have much political message themselves. They're just, you know, Railroad Bill was was barely, you know, and both both of them were on the run half their their careers. They weren't really having this broader political message. Even Jesse James, you know, he had some folks trying to make a sort of a neo Confederate, but uh, a lot of these guys weren't being really explicitly political. They're just trying to, to sort of make some money off things, uh, but they're really doing this by by sort of exploiting. You know, this sort of gray area between, you know, when things get kind of figured out, when we have this railroad boom, they're using these, you know, the speed, the connections, all these things to to, to, to start their crime. So uh, that, that part was really fun to, to, to write, too, because it's fun to write about train robbers, first of all. But it just sort of gets at some of these bigger questions that the book focuses on about myth making and how we remember things, uh, because we do like to you know, inscribe these political meanings on these train robbers uh, after the fact. That's a sort of common trend that we have. And one of the things that you end on is the populist movement and, you know, their arguments against railroads in the South and how that, you know, kind of ended um, the kind of tension between the populists and railroads. And so for our listeners who might not, who might be unfamiliar can you briefly explain what the populists even were and then kind of go into what this tension was and how it ended? Yeah, populism is in some ways sort of the, the culmination of this sort of New South story. And uh, a lot of historians have also written on on this as well. But it's this, uh, you know, this attempt to kind of forge this this new third party. And it starts with the Farmers Alliance as it fills up the Populist Party, the People's Party. Uh, and, and they were in a sense, pushing back against, uh, you know, large companies and, you know, the farmers were getting screwed in various areas. Uh, the South, especially had a pretty strong populist movement. Uh, in some cases, even this movement even butt up against the South's racial hierarchies, you know, in North Carolina for a brief time, we have a populist Republican fusion government in the 1890s, which has both black and white folks in it, essentially, which is remarkable that that late after Reconstruction, essentially. Uh, and the, the populists had this pretty strong anti-monopoly argument when it came to, to railroads. Uh, they weren't 
you know, vis-a-vis against railroads, a lot of times they, they wanted more railroads even because this would give more competition. Uh, sometimes they even tried to build their own railroads. There was some plan that didn't really go too well. They, they tried this at one point. So it's not so much the railroad as a technology, but it's the railroad as this technology controlled by, by large monopolies and large companies. Uh, and they argued that when the railroads got too big, this, this stifles competition. This means they can then jack up the, the rates on the farmers or, or abuse practices. We get this metaphor of the, the octopus as the railroad has this all-controlling octopus, which is something that shows up a lot when you think about California history or Western history. But I was finding the same kind of argument in, in the Deep South in places like Georgia and North Carolina where people are pushing back against the Southern Railway. Uh, and in the end, you know, I argue that this anti-monopoly message gets drowned out you know, by white supremacy and race is what ends up kind of dooming this uh, this critique that they had of the railroads. You know, the 1898 campaign in North Carolina is so famous as the white supremacy campaign. And it ends in this violent white supremacist coup in Wilmington that overturns this biracial government. Uh, but I think it's kind of interesting and notable, the other side of this campaign, the populist slash Republican side, you know, their big issue was breaking up the Southern Railway. That was what they thought they would win this election on. Of course, uh, they don't. I mean, race ends up being the, the more powerful appeal to voters. Uh, but this idea of breaking up these big companies, that kind of gets lost uh, in a sense, when the populists go under. The progressives don't really challenge the very size of the railroads. They want to regulate them. Uh, so I was trying to kind of recover this sort of lost anti-monopoly critique that the populists had in the South with this chapter. And uh, hopefully it can accomplish that. But Yeah, I mean, I think this book overall is really good. You know, once again, we have Engines of Redemption, Railroads and a Reconstruction of Capitalism in the New South by Dr. R. Scott Hufford Jr. And so we have this great book in front of us. What might you be working on next? And I know this just came out. So if you just want to tell me I'm trying to take a break, that's completely okay. Oh, I'm trying a small break, but not not too big. I'm trying to gear up for something well, not entirely new, but uh, so I'm starting a biography of Casey Jones, uh, or at least beginning the research for, for this project. Uh, and Casey Jones is you know, perhaps our most famous railroad conductor. He was killed in Mississippi in 1900s. He was trying to, to make up lost time with this, this, this fast mail train. And he goes down with the ship or the train. In this case, he sort of dooms himself to, to save the passengers uh, and there's all these songs about him, you know, the Grateful Dead song, and then all kinds of folk songs. And it would be, in some ways, kind of a natural outgrowth of, of this current project, this biography. You know, it's the same sort of time period as the South. Uh, can and I want to look at the world he came from, understand uh, who he is, you know, what the rare conductors are doing in the South, and uh, and then I think the more interesting part is sort of how he becomes such a legend. It's this kind of a strange thing that Americans have fallen in love with this story that that's quite bleak. This guy who's killed trying to make up lost time. Uh, so that's sort of the, the idea here. I'm, I'm just sort of kickstarting the research. Uh, I'm a huge fan of sort of train songs and railroad music too. And that's just a little bit in the, in the current book. And this project would be in some ways kind of going all in on the sort of music project, but of course also grounding it in the history as well. But 
Well, that sounds very interesting. And I'm sure once that's completed, we'll have you right back on to uh, this program. But in the meantime, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you very much. I'd love to come back. and, And thanks. 